Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Senior Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce. You all don't see this, but Rick Klein rocks out to the music here, I, by the way. There's I, an air guitar happening. You think it's air? I'm actually playing the music. Don't believe what Mary is <laughs> telling you. When John Carl's not here, I get to actually play the instruments. That's how <laughs> That's how it works. So, Mary, you know, we often deal with on this podcast a uh, an overflowing uh, cornucopia of, of issues that we could potentially discuss in our regularly scheduled Wednesday podcast. But this week, it feels like there's only one big story. This week was the one trick pony one trick pony it starts with a, a tweet um you've seen it if you're listening to this podcast you know about it you've heard a lot about it in the last couple of days the president uh singling out a number of uh of freshman members of congress who happen to be women who happen to be of color uh and suggesting that they should go home um the firestorm may seem familiar but it was newly engaged it culminates with that weird wild scene on the house of representatives floor that uh, ultimately a, a, a mostly partisan vote to condemn the president's words as racist, as engaging in racism. Uh, and now the president's set to hit the campaign trail uh, tonight in North Carolina, seemingly newly energized, engaged in this, as always, not backing down. And, and now with most of the Republican Party, if not firmly behind him, at least not really condemning him. Yeah, look, the president, what is clear after seeing all of this play out, he thinks this is good politics for him. He is trying to reframe the the, the presidential race as him versus these four Democratic congresswomen who aren't even running for president, by the way. But it's a way for him to make them his target, to try and make the case, as I suspect we will hear tonight on the campaign trail, that it's what he stands for versus their far left progressive, as he will call it, socialist agenda. It puts his own party in a real tough spot, though. And that's what we saw this week. I mean, I was up there working the halls all week long, and Republicans did not want to talk about this. We have seen this before. The president comes out and says something that is overwhelmingly condemned. In this case, it was these racist tweets. And Republicans essentially go into hiding a lot of them. They simply don't want to deal with this. And they hope in some ways it'll blow over, it seems, that obviously you can only hide from this issue for so long. And what was striking, I think, to me, having watched this play out so many different times and different iterations when the president seems to cross a line one way or another, is that you did have, you know, a handful come out and condemn the president. But even those who are denouncing the president's comments did so in such a muted way. In fact, let's take a listen to, to one of them who's the first one of the one of the early ones, one of the only ones to come out against this uh, Senator Mitt Romney. The president of the United States uh, has a noble and unique role to unite the country and to draw on all people, regardless of their race, their color, uh, their national origin. And in that regard, the president, I think, failed. What you didn't hear there and what you really didn't hear from many Republicans at all was the word racist. So many Republicans would come out and say, this is disgusting. It's, you know, unacceptable. The president shouldn't be talking like this. But they won't go and call it what it is, which is a racist attack. Uh, And on the flip side, you had many Republicans then sort of twisting themselves into pretzels to defend the president. Uh, Let's take a listen to to one of the exchanges that I had uh, with Senator Inhofe. Do you think they're racist? Do you support these attacks? Do you agree with them? I don't think they're racist. You know, the president has a style. He has something that, that, that generally speaking, the media doesn't like. Um, And... But it's, it served it served him very well in the past, and I don't try to be critical of 
what he does. Are these attacks good politics? Do. Are they good for Republicans? Let's find out. No, I don't think they're. I don't. First of all, I don't think they're attacks. They're not attacks. No, Him saying they should go back to their country isn't an attack. What happened there, Mary? What, what, that was him I turning and walking away. Oh. There's, been, there's, been, there's been a lot of Republicans <laughs> walking away from us this week. So we're going to tackle this issue from a couple of different directions with some, some I think, really well-timed guests. We're going to talk to Tim Alberta, the chief political correspondent of the Politico, who has written a brand-new book that chronicles the way that Trump rose through the, from the Republican Party. His central argument is that the party was waiting to get taken over by someone like Donald Trump, and I think his arguments have been borne out by the events of this week. We're also going to talk to former congressman and former governor Mark Sanford, who uh, announced this week that he's thinking about running for president. It'll be an interesting perspective, Mary. But uh, let's get back to this because we've seen the cycle play out so many times. And uh, the you can you can dial it up and press play and you know what's going to happen. The president does something, says something offensive, blatantly, obviously offensive. Um, the, the White House doesn't really know how to explain what he said. Uh, there's Republican silence. There's Democrat condemnation. They're out there every step of the way. There's even a new push to impeach the president mm-hmm. based on this as well as other conduct. 24, 48 hours later, a couple of Republicans, a very small handful, it seems like a smaller handful every time, mm-hmm. comes out and says, yeah, this this stepped over the line. This is not the right the right kind of answer. Uh, the Democrats in this case take go as far as to formally condemn the comments. And the president digs in. The president digs in and recognizes that this is a powerful political argument for him. He's been called a racist before in the context of a presidential campaign, and it didn't matter. And his view, it would seem, Mary, is that he's got the party lined up behind him and that he knows how to drive his turnout and his base and all of these name calling just rolls right off him. Two things I would point out. One, what this episode really shows is just how far Republicans have gone to line up behind the president. Because in previous somewhat similar incidents, you would have more Republicans speaking out against him. You know, during the campaign, I keep thinking about uh, Paul Ryan coming out and saying that the president's conduct was the textbook definition of racism. About Judge Goriel when he when he when he exactly. talked about the Mexican American judge who was born in Indiana and said that he couldn't be he couldn't be unbiased. In this case, it took days for Republican leadership to come out and say anything, and then it was falling in line with the president. So it tells us a lot about the state of the Republican Party. But the second thing, when you think about the the president's play here, right, he's trying to get Democrats united around their most far left members. And in that case, the president has succeeded somewhat, right? You see Pelosi, all the Democratic leaders coming out, coming to defend their own. Um, and so it did coalesce, right, the Democratic Party, which was pretty fractured. I mean, Nancy Pelosi was sparring with these members in some ways still is. Just last week, AOC was calling her racist. Just last week. And so this completely changed that conversation. But what I would caution is that the president has used this playbook before, right? We have seen this over and over again. It doesn't always work, though. And you only have to look back to the midterms to see that when the president kind of ramped up certain types of attacks, well, they can backfire given the huge gains the Democrats made around the midterms. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it is curious because there aren't any, there really aren't many Republicans that would advise the president to engage in this. Steve Bannon is one who would and he said he'd love to see the Democrats basically call him a racist until from now until Election Day. They think they win that argument. But it's not like they're sitting back there in their at the RNC headquarters or in the Republican conference meetings and saying, you know, what would be great is if the president could attack 
these four freshman Democratic women and suggest they all go back to their home country, even though three of them were born in the United States and the other one was a refugee who came here at age 12, all are duly elected members of Congress. That would be a really cool strategy. They don't think that, Mary. It's not written on the whiteboard at the RNC right now. (laughs) But what's so interesting is that while you will have many Republicans now, Republican leadership, you know, Mitch McConnell, you heard him saying, oh, there's plenty of blame to go around. The rhetoric needs to be dialed down across the board. They're finding a way to defend the president here. They're not saying this is good politics. They aren't saying that, hey, this is what the Republican Party stands for. You know, vote for us. We back these tweets. That's not the argument. Uh, But that's clearly what the president thinks, that this is, you know, good for him in 2020. And this, by the way, is the playbook. You are going to see this over and over again, him setting himself up against these progressive members. Yeah, and they and they know it. Uh, and I, I want to, before before we close out this portion of the discussion, talk about Mitch McConnell for a moment, because he's, the, of course, the Senate uh, Republican leader. He's the majority leader in the United States Senate. He's also married to an immigrant, um, Elaine Chao, the Secretary of Transportation, herself uh, came here from China with her family. Uh, Mary, I, I feel like we all run to the cameras to ask him questions, knowing that he's Mitch McConnell and he's not going to give very much. But even in that context, I thought his answer was pretty striking. Well, it's just so rare for Mitch McConnell to actually field personal questions like this. This is about his wife, who also just so happens to be in the president's cabinet. Earlier this week, we actually saw her sitting there next to the president while he fielded questions from reporters about his tweets and and recent remarks. So take a listen to the way Mitch McConnell fielded this one. Well, the secretary of transportation came here at age eight legally, not speaking a word of English, and has realized the American dream. And I think all of us think that uh, this is a process of renewal that's gone on in this country. Uh, for a very long time, and it's good for America, and we ought to continue it. But what was it racist for him to say go back? Was it racist for him to say go back to the country? As I said, uh, the, the, the legal immigration has been a uh, fulfilling of the American dream. The new people who come here have a lot of ambition, a lot of energy, tend to do very well and invigorate our country. And my wife's a good example of that. You have this remarkable juxtaposition between Mitch McConnell on the one hand defending the president's comments, but also holding up his wife as this example of the American dream, of the promise of America. And, and of course, he didn't answer in any way what how he would respond if someone no. actually said that. And, and the point that you've made that while the question is, were these racist comments – um, he, the, 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 most Republicans are, are coming back and saying, well, actually, the president is not a racist, which is a different thing. It's a very different thing. And that's exactly what Leader McConnell did when he was pushed again and again and again, that he was stopping short of saying that the president's comments were racist. And in fact, stopping short of even commenting on the president's language at all. Mitch McConnell came back and said, well, you know, the president is not a racist. And we all, all of us in the press corps shot back. Well, what about the president's language? What right. about the actual words? Because... Making a racist comment and being racist are different things. Yeah, they, they are indeed. And it's been another one of those strange episodes to, to see play out in a very divided Washington and a very divided country. Well, Mary, earlier today, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to Tim Alberta from Politico about his new book, American Carnage. Take a listen. And now joining us here on Powerhouse Politics, Tim Alberta, the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine and the author of the brand new book, American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of Trump. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. 
So you don't get to time the news cycle or direct the news cycle around the publication of a book, uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine a much of a better environment to uh, to have your reporting come out in the midst of. And I'm just curious, given the news of the last couple of days with the president's tweet, with him picking this fight uh, with the broader Democratic Party, as well as these four Democratic women, and then the Republican response, what do you make of it and, and what 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 do you feel like uh, this tells us about the state of the Republican Party here in July of 2019? Yeah, look, I, I think the last 96 hours or so is a pretty good window into what has happened to the Republican Party over the last, you know, say, period of 10 years. And, and I think obviously, more specifically, maybe the last three and a half to four years. Um, and, and it's, the, you know, the president is going to do what the president does. I don't think any of us were particularly surprised at at what he did. I think what continues to surprise some people is the Republican response, or in this case, you know, pretty much the lack thereof. And, and, and folks ask themselves, you know, why, why aren't there more Republicans willing to to come out and, and speak out and denounce this kind of rhetoric? And I think the answer is pretty simple. And I think it's the same answer uh, to the question of how did Trump take over the Republican Party in the first place, which is that, you know, at its, at its uh, most distilled, Rick, the Republican Party that Trump saw in 2015 when he got into that race was a party that was sort of fundamentally weak. He surveyed the political class. He looked at these people who are running for president and he thought, you know what? They're a bunch of patsies. Uh, you know, these folks are not oriented toward confrontation. They don't know how to play hardball. They're, they're all you know, sort of um, reared to believe in these set of rules and, and conventions around politics. And, and I'm just going to come in and I'm going to, you know, drop a bomb on all of their heads. And, and it's funny, actually, I talk about this a little bit in the book. The one person who Trump did have a healthy respect for and even a fear of politically was Ted Cruz, because he was the one person in that race who Trump had noticed didn't always play by the rules. You know, he was willing to called Mitch McConnell a liar. He was willing to sort of play a little bit dirty. And, and, and Trump liked that, right? Uh, and obviously those two wound up having this historic rivalry, which we can get into later. But the point being, Trump really surveyed the landscape and he was pretty prescient in identifying the fact that, look, I can do and say whatever I want and I'm not going to back down and none of these people are going to take me on for it. And he was right. He was right during the 2016 campaign. He was right after winning the nomination and into the fall during the active Hollywood thing. Ultimately, the Trump we see today and the Republican Party that is largely overwhelmingly acquiescent to him is the story of Trump's ascent in the first place. If, if, if we could go back in time and imagine how different that primary would have been in 2016, Rick, had Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and John Kasich gone after Trump from day one, if they had not you know, played footsies with him for the first six months of the race, how different would that campaign have looked? But instead, they all basically kept their distance, believing that he would either implode or that he wasn't serious. And and that fundamental miscalculation at the beginning has sort of brought us to where we are today. And then maybe more surprising, um, but I think proving your point and proving Trump's point, to have Ted Cruz emerge as a fierce defender of the president, to have Lindsey Graham, of all people, um, despite the criticisms of John McCain, his good friend, despite what he said about his xenophobia uh, during the campaign, to have these Republicans fall into line, even Paul Ryan, who you had some really interesting conversations with, uh, boost the Trump agenda and and t- take pains not to criticize him. All of that, uh, in a sense, proved Trump's point that the, the to your argument, 
that uh, this the, the the talking about principles and the the talk about the the, the need to have a, a higher calling and a higher purpose in politics, all of that was just a bunch of hot air. Yeah, look, and we could go down the list. I mean, whether it's, you know, Rick Perry calling Trump a cancer on conservatism, and now he's a member of his cabinet who led the prayer session in yesterday's cabinet meeting, or whether it's, you know, Marco Rubio calling him a con man, Ted Cruz saying that, you know, he's a pathological liar and he's immoral, Paul Ryan calling him a racist in so many words. Um, You know, we could devote a whole podcast just to, and Lindsey Graham, look, Lindsey Graham almost occupies a special place in this category because, of all of the criticisms he launched at Trump, but also because of the fact that there's probably no stauncher Trump defender now than Lindsey Graham. And so you do ask yourself, well, why? You know, well, why do these people uh, put themselves through this? What, what, what do you attribute this, this evolution to? And I think it's a complicated question, but the simplest answer, Rick, is that, you know, politics is the art of self-preservation. We know that, and, and it's disturbing and it's depressing for people to hear, but it's just the truth. Anybody who's spent five minutes on Capitol Hill or on the campaign trail, you realize that most of these folks really just want to protect their hide. And today's Republican Party essentially falls around a very binary fault line, which is, are you with Trump or are you against Trump? There's no more of this ideological warfare that consumed the party in the post-W. Bush years. It's really a simple question of, are you going to back Trump or are you going to speak out against Trump? And if you're a Republican today and you see what happened to Jeff Flake and to Mark Sanford and to Bob Corker and to Justin Amash, you you know that you're taking your career into your own hands if you dare to speak out against them. Talk a little bit about the conversations you had with Paul Ryan uh, shortly after he left the speakership. Uh, they were maybe more frank than we've heard him describe his relationship with the president. It certainly got the president's attention this week as he's been attacking the uh, the former House Speaker who is now out of politics, serving in the private sector and on corporate boards. But what was the scene like, and, and what was what was the what was the interview like that you got Paul Ryan to open up in this fashion? Yeah, so this is a few weeks after he retired. So this is back in January uh, of this year. And I went down to Janesville, and we had met in that same office space a couple of times over the years. I, I've covered Ryan for a long time, and, and I feel like I know him pretty well, and I can kind of pick up his mannerisms. And I could I could just tell Rick almost immediately that, that this was a little bit different, that he – I mean, first of all, he offered me a beer, and it was like 2 in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and, and I – sort of got a kick out of that because I thought, man, it must, you know, these guys, once they get into retirement, right? Um, he just, he looked liberated and, and he looked kind of relaxed, like all of this stress had gone out of his body, but he also did look really troubled. Like he, you know, and I don't want to be melodramatic. It just, he looked like he had some things he needed to get off of his chest. And so we sat down and it didn't take much prompting. Uh, he, and it's important, I should note that, you know, I spoke with uh, Paul Ryan uh, previously for the book. We had done two interviews, two long interviews, and the first one had been a few months earlier while he was still in office. And that Paul Ryan was the Paul Ryan that America saw during the Trump presidency, very buttoned down, you know, not willing to really utter any negative word about the president. And almost immediately in this new conversation, it was like a switch had flipped and pretty much unsolicited in a number of cases, just basically it almost seemed like he wasn't talking to me as much as he was sort of talking out loud and, and thinking out loud and talking to himself about, like, how do we pick up the pieces and, and what happened to our culture that, you know, this guy was able to win the presidency in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a really fascinating conversation. And I don't think that 
you know, maybe Ryan didn't know that it was going to create quite the firestorm it did and, and, and aggravate the president quite as much as it did. But look, he's not stupid. He, I think he understood exactly what he was saying in that moment. But I think that he's got kids and he realizes he's self-aware enough to understand that, you know, his reputation had kind of taken a beating over the last couple of years. And he had once been viewed as, you know, one of these guys who was really aspiring to those better angels of our politics and a guy who was really known on Capitol Hill as, as just this really good, decent dude who who people on the Democratic side, even when they you know ravaged his policy proposals, they really liked him personally. Everybody thought that he was a guy with a moral compass, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was a really hard two years for him with Trump, and which is just to say that I think he is mindful of the fact that you know that's kind of his legacy now, and he felt like he wanted to try and correct the record to the extent possible. And good for you for getting him to talk on the record in a, a sentiment that I know I've heard from a lot of Republicans off the record in private conversations. There is that sense of self-reflection that they recognize that this is not an ordinary time and that the principles that they stood for for a long time um, seem a lot different. You focus a lot, and I think it's a savvy point you make about the importance of Mike Pence. Um, pretty pretty eye-opening uh, details that you have about how his uh, members of his staff and even Karl Rove were pushing him in the direction of Mike Pence. He's a curious figure, I think, for a lot of people because he is a man of deep faith. Uh, the president recognizes, I think, the importance of Pence to keeping that coalition together. Do you get a sense in reporting on and, and talking to the vice president that he shares any of these these concerns and views it in the same way? Or is it um, is it as you talk about the the bobblehead that uh, is described by by some of his uh, former uh, former friends on Capitol Hill, that he's, he's agreeing with everything and just puts a good smile on it? Well, it's a complicated question. Um, so, look, there's a couple of ways I would stab at this. Uh, first, Pence, like so many of these other Republicans we've been talking about, had really, really deep-seated concerns about Trump. And in fact, as I write about in the book, you know, during Trump's initial rise in late 2015, Pence told friends of his and, and allies and, and political advisors that he was like, you know, just kind of disgusted by Trump that, that, you know, who is this guy to be saying these really crude and vulgar things? I mean, you've got to place this in the context of who Mike Pence is. This is a guy who was offended by the Disney film Mulan back in the day because of the political statement it was trying to make about women in the military. So Pence is a pretty traditional guy, and he's very, very devoutly religious. And so here comes Donald Trump making all of these crass and crude and vulgar remarks and insulting a lot of people. And Mike Pence also, you know, he was a movement conservative, but Pence was also, you know, a big-time free trader, a big-time path to citizenship, comprehensive legal immigration reform guy. So you know, here comes Trump, and Pence doesn't know what to make of him, but he knows that he doesn't really like it much. And then at that point, though, Rick, I would I would draw kind of this inflection point, because Pence, when he starts to be courted by Trump, goes through this sort of metamorphosis. And the short story is, by all accounts, and, and I actually really do believe it, I don't think it's a fake narrative, Pence becomes sort of seduced by Trump. Uh, the more time Pence spends around Trump, he becomes convinced that basically – the caricature out there is all wrong, that that there's this sort of alter ego, this public perception of Trump that does not align with the guy he's gotten to know, that really this is a guy who's really genuine and really fun to be around and loves his family. And, and Pence even told me that, you know, that, that Trump was, you know, serious about his Christian faith, which I think a lot of us might want to call BS on, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, Pence really does become 
sort of enamored of Trump in a way. And when and, and he becomes very desirous of the job. And all the while, you've got these other people from Karl Rove to Kellyanne Conway to Jared Kushner to Paul Manafort working ferociously behind the scenes to put Pence on the ticket because they all understood, as you said, Rick, how critical Pence was going to be to that coalition. And look, fast forwarding it to today, everything I know about Pence from inside the White House and his relationship with Trump is that he is the one guy, if you've noticed over the last couple of years, basically everybody else around the president, uh, you know, West Wing people, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, Mark Meadows, the Freedom Caucus chairman, everybody around Trump has gotten themselves into the doghouse at one point or another. They've been in the crosshairs. The one exception is Pence. And it is because he he not only is never willing to do anything publicly to break with the president, but I'm also told that it's when he does have significant disagreements, things that he really does feel strongly about, he always sits down with Trump privately and expresses them. And that's something that Trump really values in his vice president. Uh, that's a fascinating point. And fi- finally, Tim Alberta, before we let you go, let's talk 2020. Uh, the president's got a rally tonight. There's been a lot of commentary about this attack on these four Democratic women uh, as, as, a, as presaging a 2020 strategy. What is your sense, based on your book and your reporting, uh, of what the 2020 campaign looks like? Is it rerunning the 2016 greatest hits and, the, and that playbook? Is there a, another act by the president? And, and how much does it matter that he's got the Republican Party with him rather than working against him in so many ways like they were in 16? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, to the first part of your uh, of your question, Rick, I would say that it is mostly going to be a replay of 2016. And what you're seeing this week is, in many ways, Trump going back to that 2016 Republican primary where he constantly had a foil to use, whether it was Lion Ted or Little Marco or Low Energy Jeb. Trump really thrived off of having a political foil. And he looks at these four Democratic freshman progressive congresswomen and he sees a foil. He would love to paint the entire Democratic Party with the broad brush uh, of these women, a couple of whom have obviously said really controversial things and are very polarizing figures, even on the left. And so Trump looks at this feud between Nancy Pelosi and sort of the old guard of the Democratic establishment and, and these young progressives, and he wants to insert himself in it to make sure that anybody and everybody on the right, maybe not so much in the middle and certainly not on the left, but that everybody on the American right, even those people who may have Trump fatigue, who are a little worn out, who aren't sure they want to do another four years of this with him, that they know that a vote against him is a vote for socialism. It is a vote for the Green New Deal. It is a vote for Medicare for all and stripping away private insurance from, you know, 150 million Americans. It is a vote for giving, giving health care coverage to, to undocumented immigrants. And so Trump wants to put socialism on trial here, right? That, there's no, there's no uh, disputing that. He telegraphed that very clearly at the beginning of the year in his State of the Union address. The question, I think, really is, do Democrats play into that? Do they, do they walk right into this trap that he's trying to set for them? And the early returns, obviously, we've only had the one debate, but just as an example, Rick, and that second night of the debate in Miami, when they asked the question, you know, how many of you would cover illegal immigrants with your health care plans? And all 10 of them raised their hand. Look, I just literally wrote the book on the Republican Party veering so far to the right as to almost become an unrecognizable. When you think back 10 years, Barack Obama convened a joint session of Congress to insist to the American people that his plan, the ACA, would not cover illegal immigrants. And that was the night when Joe Wilson, the congressman from South Carolina, famously yelled at him, you lie. And 
And it's just really incredible to think about where the Democratic Party is going to be circa 2019 as compared to 09. And I think that there's a real question within the Democratic ranks about, you know, do, are we going to be at danger of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory here? Because Donald Trump's margin for error is so, so small and it's going to be so difficult for him to reassemble that coalition uh, to win again in 2020, seeing how suburban Republicans have sort of fled the party over the last couple of years. And Democrats, I think, have to be obviously very, very worried about walking into that trap that he's trying to set for them. All right. The book is a fascinating read. Tim Alberta, the chief political correspondent for Political Magazine, the author of American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of Trump. Tim, we appreciate you dialing in here. Appreciate you being with us. Hey, thanks a lot, Rick. And our thanks to Tim Alberta. When we come back, we're going to talk to the latest potential entry into the 2020 field, former Congressman, former Governor Mark Sanford of South Carolina. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined on the podcast now by the former Governor of South Carolina and a former Congressman, Mark Sanford, who has uh, said that he is now thinking about running for president in the Republican primaries. Uh, Governor, welcome to the program. My pleasure to join you. Thank you. So walk us through your timeline and your thinking now. Uh, you've, you've been telling people 30 days or so before you make a final decision on, on whether to run for president uh, in 2020. What are the factors that are going through your mind? Are you making fundraising efforts right now? Are you making calls to gauge support? What What would make you say yes or no to this? Well, a, a, a combination of the above. I'm not making fundraising calls because I'm not a declared candidate. And, and uh, once you get into that side of, of operations, you trip a wire in terms of becoming a declared candidate. Uh, I, I want to just simply talk to friends, get a better sense of uh, who might be able to help, who would be able to help, whether or not there are folks that are responding uh, via you know web, phone call, and all the different ways of getting in touch with one saying, I want to help out. In short, I'm going to determine based on the degree to which there's receptivity for what I'm saying, which is that we're walking our way into a financial crisis. We have got to have a conversation nationally about debt deficit and government spending, which is currently not a part of this presidential debate. And I don't think we can wait another four years to have that debate. But whether or not there's an appetite for that in a political sense remains to be seen, and that's what I want to explore over the 30 days. Is the bar, Governor, whether you can win a Republican primary, whether you can influence the debate, or something else? Because I think you look at any polling around the president, and and a lot of people have, it doesn't look like there's a lot of vulnerability for him in a Republican primary. I agree with that. Uh, I, I think the question is, you know, if you think about Buchanan's run for president, you think about some of these different, even Perot, who just, you know, unfortunately died. You know, there are ways of winning, but not winning in an electoral sense. In other words, I think it would be a win if you change the debate. We begin to have a real serious conversation on the Republican and Democratic sides of the aisle as to what we do to avoid a financial upheaval. Uh, I, I think, again, it's Erskine Bowles, Clinton's former chief of staff, who said, we're walking our way toward the most predictable financial crisis in the history of man. I believe that he was right. And so, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, winning necessarily has to be a goal in this kind of thing. The question is, can you win in bringing this debate forward? Now, you've been pointing to, to reining in government spending as one of the top reasons why you would jump in. But you know, when it comes to the economy, you've seen the numbers. The president, he has pretty high marks right now. Is 
the economy the best way to try to take on Trump? Uh, in a political sense, no. I mean, and that's why people aren't talking about it. They're talking about uh, his different character flaws, what they don't like about what he says, the way he's inflammatory, divisive, go down the list. But I think from the standpoint of truth and reality, this is uh, the elephant in the room. Uh, it's what we're not talking about. He is, in fact, ruled out action on the very things that drive our debt and spending. On the Democratic side, it's a, a long laundry list of, of, of ads. Let's add this, let's add that. But no real conversation about, wait, we're on a trillion-dollar deficits going forward. We've never done that before in peacetime. We're at the highest level of debt we've ever had in a peacetime environment. Uh, something's going to break. And I think, again, at times it's important to go out and say, this I believe to be true north. Let's have a conversation about it. So let's talk about some of that truth and reality, as you just said. Reigning in government spending has not exactly been a key concern of Republicans on the Hill. This isn't just Trump. This is the party as well, or at least the actions that we've seen over the last few years. What happened to Republicans being the party of fiscal conservatism? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it's telling. You know, John Boehner had the cute quote uh, some time ago. I don't know where the Republican Party is. I think it must be sleeping somewhere. <laughs> um, there's something of a cult of personality that goes with Trump. He has a commanding and powerful personality. And people have sort of bowed in his presence, uh, at least on the Republican side. As you're an office holder, you do not want to be on the receiving end of a bad Trump uh, tweet storm. Uh, I've done it. and It doesn't work out well. Um, but I, I think this, uh, again, parties at the end of the day are about principles and ideals. And one of the cornerstones of the Republican Party traditionally has been financial realism, uh, fiscal conservatism. That, to your point, has gone out the window of late, but it doesn't make, um, again, its importance uh, dissipate. It doesn't make it disappear. I mean, I wish it did. Uh, we, we could all live in a financial la-la land, but that's not the story of civilizations throughout time. Civilizations that have become untethered to financial reality in time have seen real problems that have hurt the the working people. They've hurt the middle class. They've hurt everybody in, in within the confines of that civilization. Governor, I'm curious. I wouldn't I wouldn't belittle the, the importance of the issue that you're identifying here around spending and the debt. But in the constellation of reasons that one might want to take on Trump, either in the primary or the general election, but just in the, inside the, the confines of the Republican Party, look at his foreign policy and look at the way that he's he redefined trade and uh, and what it means to, to represent American values, his relationships with Kim Jong-un, tearing up the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, go on and on on foreign policy, domestic policy. There's there's a lot out there. Personal contact. There's so much out there. What is it about sure. this issue? Is this the issue, or are there others where you say this president has taken us in a wrong direction? I wouldn't disagree with the things that you raised. I mean, I think that they're real and legitimate. But there are a lot of people talking about that um, on both sides of the aisle. But what we're not talking about is the fact that our debt is now growing exponentially. I mean, think about this. It, it took 200 years to accumulate $5 trillion of national debt. 
It doubled under President uh, George W. Bush from 5 to 10. It doubled again under Obama from 10 to 20. And we're well on our way from going to 20 to 40 in what might year be the eight years of the Trump presidency. I, I, or maybe let me put it to you a little bit differently. Uh, nobody's having a conversation about the fact that just next year we will spend more on interest and we do in, 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 on children in America in terms of federal programs. That, that includes education, that includes welfare, that includes uh, aid to families. And in three years, we will spend more on interest than we do on national defense. Nobody is talking about that. And in fact, in five years, we'll spend more on interest than we do on all of message discretionary. You know, all those debates that we have as Republicans and Democrats, you know, on the House floor, on the House and Senate, all those debates are, are of less consequence and less in total scale than the, just just the interest number we'll be looking at in five years. The interest is, in fact, going to be the fastest growing federal expenditure over the next 10 years. And that assumes the continued benign interest rate that we live in, which I don't think will be pro- proved to be the case. One more factoid. I'm boring you with these. But a one point increase in interest rates means about one hundred sixty billion dollars. So we'll talk about. Do we spend $4 billion down to help with folks on the border? Uh, do we spend 10 or 20 here? $160 billion is the number with a one-point rise in interest rates. That is more than we spend on all uniformed personnel in the United States uh, military. That's 1.2 million active duty. That's 800,000 uh, you know, reservists. I mean, the numbers become stark. And and so I would just say we're working ourselves into a math trap and we need to have discussion on it. But I would grant you that some of the politics of, of what you're getting in terms of vulnerability or uh, needed debate are, are there on your side. When it comes to the politics of all of this and the shift that we have seen uh, from Republicans, especially on the Hill, in terms of this issue over the the last couple of years, you mentioned that cult of personality, as you described it, the way in which we've seen Republicans line up behind the president time and time again. Is there a chance, you think, for Republicans to get back, for the party to get back to this principle, as you've described it, if Donald Trump is still president? Is well, that even possible? That's a $94 question. That's what I'm going to explore over the next 30 days. <laughs> if there's just absolutely no shot and it's an impenetrable uh, fortress, well, then forget it. I don't want to waste my time. But if there is a shot to open up a larger debate on, wait a minute, uh, I, I, I get it that everybody sort of revolves around his orbit, but, you know, we have a giant meteor coming our way called debt and its consequences. And unless we deal with that, uh, you know, this this orbit we got going is going to, you know, cause all of us problems. So I, 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 that's the $94 question, and I don't have the answer to it. Governor, I want to I want to just recite for you a comment that the uh, the, the chairman of the state Republican Party uh, made in in, uh, in reaction to your uh, your announcement this week that you were considering this. Um, quote, the last time Mark Sanford had an idea this dumb, it killed his governorship. This makes, makes about as much sense as that trip up the Appalachian Trail. Uh, we've seen President Trump as well reference the, uh, the, the, the affair and the end of your governorship uh, in, in critiquing you uh, as recently as last year. Is that fair game as far as you're concerned? As you know, the president's got quite a checkered personal history of his own. Is that something that you'd be prepared to make the case on against President Trump if you decide to get into the primary, or is that off limits? 
I mean, there's nothing on or off limits in the world of politics. And, you know, I think it's I, I, what I think is interesting is this. I didn't say I was running for president. I just said, look, I, I'm going to explore the next 30 days the best avenue toward raising what I think is an existential crisis uh, and threat to our country. And th- th- that's not my taking. I mean, I think it's telling that Admiral Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when asked what's the biggest threat to the American civilization, answers not the Chinese, not the Taliban, but he answers the American debt. So others have surmised that this is a huge problem. And so I, I go out and I say, look, I- I'm going to look for any way of, of, of advancing that particular point that I think needs to be talked about on the national stage. It could mean running for president. It could mean starting an advocacy group. It could mean doing none of the above. And what's the immediate response from the chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party? We'll go back to the Appalachian Trail. You know, I I, I find it weird that, again, I'm just laying out an idea based on a pretty important idea that used to be important in the Republican Party. Hey, we got a problem with debt and spending. And immediately we go to a personal attack. And that's the world we live in, I guess. But I, I think that's part of what's turned people off to politics. Am I an imperfect messenger? Absolutely. Is that part of the reason that I've held up, as friends have suggested I do this for the last 30, uh, you know, not 30 days. I told them I'd give them 30 days, but for the last year? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to get hit on that stuff. I don't want to reopen old scabs. But i got to look my four sons in the eye and you know, here we have hurricanes that hit the coast of South Carolina. And oftentimes the nicest days are like a day or two before the hurricane hits. And if you, and I do have experience on this, you know, I was on the budget committee when I was governor, I inherited a billion-dollar financial hole in coming into office. I mean, I've really dealt with a lot of numbers over the years. If I'm aware of what I believe to be a hurricane approaching the coast, and I'm a weatherman and I say nothing, well, then shame on me. And particularly if nobody else has said, I'll raise the white flag and, and, and try and raise attention to this issue. And I, I kept waiting for Kasich or for the governor of Maryland and for somebody else to go. Nobody has. So I said, I'm going to look at it. I didn't say I'm going to do it, but I will look at it and ascertain as to whether or not there is a way and a path forward. But I think it's incumbent upon all of us to look at the numbers and deliberate and think for ourselves. Do we want this to be a part of this national debate? Because if we wait four years for the next presidential debate cycle, I think we will wait it too late. And Governor, before we let you go, I just I want to get your take on the controversy that is consuming Washington this week. Uh, the mm-hmm. firestorm over the president's racist tweets, his attacks against these uh, progressive congresswomen. You know better than anyone uh, what can happen when you take on this president. It, it costs you your seat. Yeah. I'm wondering sure. what you make of what has been a, a pretty muted response from Republicans on this issue. Do they need to be speaking out more forcefully, you think? Or is it just a political reality that that is no longer an option? It's just a political reality that, you know, unless they want to get fried by the president uh, or have him come after him in some form or fashion, uh, they're going to keep quiet. That's not necessarily the right thing to do, but it just is what it is in the world of politics. I mean, I think it's telling I don't know if you've seen Tim Alberta's new book on sort of the, 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 the crisis of sort of what exists in Washington right now. But he reported in the book about particular glee the president took in torturing different people. There's a story about uh, 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 the rep from up in uh, upper Midwest. You know, the guy didn't want him um, 
in his district. And so what's the president do? He goes in his district, and he, now the guy's out. Uh, if you think about, uh, talked about um, another rep running for governor of, of t- Tennessee and, you know, Wanda's involvement, well, he wouldn't be involved because she hadn't said enough nice and, and, and respectful things about him. But what does it say I, I that think- the Republicans aren't willing to stand up to the president on an issue even one as, as as controversial as this, it says that staying in the game at times becomes the most important thing to people in politics. How would you have voted on on the resolution um, yesterday if you were still a member of Congress? I don't know. I I, I haven't looked at it. Um, you know, I, I would say this. I, I think that all of it, again, I'm not in any way dismissing uh, the racially charged, uh, inflammatory language the president uses. But all of us are, again, falling into the orbit of Donald Trump. Too much of what he talks about and does simply ensures that he'll be the center of the debate. And so we get caught in this sort of washing machine spin cycle where he goes out and says something crazy, inflammatory, obnoxious uh people react to it on one side and then he says no what i really meant was this over here then his his advocates and his supporters say well yeah he's just saying whatever and we go back forth back forth and what we're doing is we're highlighting division as americans as opposed to some measure of unity uh which is going to be necessary to solving a lot of the different problems whether you're republican or democrat going forward and so what I would say is, I, I don't, I, again, I'd have to look at the resolution to say definitively how I would have voted. But what I would do is I would absolutely condemn his comments, because what we don't need is this continued spin cycle in Washington, wherein the guy goes out and says crazy things, inflammatory things, divisive things. And then we watch the spin cycle repeat, repeat. And, and it, you know, there'll be something that new next week and the week after that and the week after that. And we'll be having a conversation you know, what would you have done? But it's all about what would you have done in reaction to Donald Trump? And what the reason I'm trying to plant this flag on debt deficit government spending is I really don't care what he has to say or doesn't have to say because he said nothing on this front other than to rule out action on the very things that would drive and exacerbate our debt and spending problem. And I think we need to have a conversation on it. All right. Uh, former governor, former congressman, Mark Sanford, thank you for being with us here on Powerhouse Politics. And we'll have you back when you've made a decision. All right. Yes, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. So, Mary, he's defining winning in a different way than actual winning. Uh, and he's now casting this decision as, as whether he could influence the debate. And I have to th- thinking it through. Bill Weld really hasn't made much of a splash. John Kasich isn't running. Uh, we've heard the, the same from Jeff Flake and, and any of a parade of other Republicans who might be considered more substantial challengers. Could Mark Sanford influence a debate, particularly in South Carolina, where right now they won't even have a primary unless there is a serious primary challenger, where he was the governor? Could he appeal to kind of some of the never-Trump Republicans as well as some that have concerns that share his? I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like a real long shot, but I don't know. I mean, never say never. I think we've all learned that. But you do make a really good point. And when you think about the criticism of those who are coming forward and, and mulling, possibly challenging the president, they're always accused of you know, just launching a publicity play, that this is just sort of a splashy way to try and get back in the conversation. And in some ways, the former governor admits, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing, because even if he doesn't run – 
He is now a topic of conversation. We are here talking about it. We're all having interesting, you know, back and forth with him. And it is a chance for other Republicans to try and make their mark one way or another. How lasting will that impression be? Is that going to actually change uh, this race fundamentally? That's a very high bar. But uh, he certainly is not the only one, and he probably won't be the last one to try and somehow force a new spotlight on what we're seeing out in the 2020 race. And one thing that's always impressed me about Mark Sanford, uh, going back to his time as governor and, and and then in Congress, he's a principled guy. And I, I thought it was it was telling to me for him to admit, look, I don't want to hear about the Appalachian Trail all yeah. over again. Uh, but all's fair in politics, and it's all out there. And, and if he does it, he knows that. And he, he he's not as quick as he might be to condemn everything the president said this mm-hmm. week because what he said is true. And I think I'm glad he called out the uh, the, the book author that we had on early in the in the podcast, Tim Alberta, because because Alberta's writing really plays this out yeah. that there is a spin cycle that Donald Trump dominates, and this week even where he is dominating for all the wrong reasons, uh, where the House of Representatives has declared him to have engaged in racist commentary. It's still a week that President Trump will kind of take in, in, in because he was dominated. He was in the middle of it. And this is what Donald Trump does better than anyone. And when it comes to Sanford, not only is he a very principled politician, but he's also a master of reinvention. I mean, not many people could have survived what he went through and come out on the other end and now be talking about possibly running for president. That alone is a pretty remarkable political turnaround. And he has not, like so many others who've come out and taken on this president, he doesn't take him on on everything. He's very realistic about uh, the challenges, shall we say, that his Republican colleagues are facing now up on the Hill. Uh and so him trying to just come in and, and shake things up a little bit, uh, it doesn't surprise me. It's very classic Sanford. Well, we'll check in with him again as the Republican field begins to potentially maybe look like it, it's got something uh, potentially going maybe, on. Sorta, maybe, sort of, kind of. Maybe, sort of, kind of. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Mary Bruce thank for you. being here. Thank you to Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, uh, Susie Liu, and the entire powerhouse politics team avery miller of course as well we'll be back next week with another edition of powerhouse politics